invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. God's word reads, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, make it so that your word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword, would pierce us this morning. And Father, remind us that you don't intend this for our harm, but for our good. We ask that you would accomplish all of your good purposes that you intend through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, Around the breakfast table, uh, my wife had some freshly cut flowers, and my kids were smelling some lovely peonies flowers, enjoying the aroma, enjoying the delight of that flowery fragrance. We are not going to be smelling peonies this morning. We're closer to the landfill as we go through this text. Not that there's anything corrupt about it, inadequate or inappropriate, but it touches on the works of our flesh, which are ugly to smell, to look at, to hear about. They're not flowery. They are repugnant. And Scripture has no problem with pulling back the veil for us so that we can see the ramifications of our fleshly living and all of its ugliness so that we will be repulsed by it, have no appetite for it, and realize that that way of living is entirely contrary to the purposes for which God has rescued us from our sin. So we're in the landfill this morning because we're discussing the works of the flesh, the works of our flesh. And we're doing this in the book of Galatians because this is the next text. That's a fundamental commitment that we have as a church that the whole counsel of God is profitable to us. We can't skip over it because it's uncomfortable or unsavory. We go through it line by line because it is God's very word and all of it is profitable. But we ask a question deeper than that, not just why are we doing it this morning, the answer being because it's the next verse, but we would ask the question, why is it the next verse in Galatians? Why is it here? This book of Galatians has been developing for us a robust theology of salvation, instructing us that we are saved not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is the only thing that saves us. And it goes on to teach us that when we come to faith in Christ, something happens to us. Not only are we declared innocent by God or declared righteous by God, entirely by his mercy and his grace, but we're also given another gift, that of the Holy Spirit, 
We've seen this passage again and again, but Galatians 3.3 is so important to the understanding of what is happening in this book. Paul asks this question in Galatians 3.3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He asks his audience, how did you begin your spiritual life? Well, you began it by faith in Jesus Christ, and through faith you received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and your whole life has been transformed. You are considered a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so the next question is, well, how do you continue this Christian life? Do you continue it by the flesh or by the Spirit? The answer is you continue by the Spirit. You cannot continue by the flesh because that's the very thing that you've been delivered from in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 Paul speaks to a church that is divided full of sinful living and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1 he says but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in Christ I fed you with milk not solid food for you were not ready for it and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The problem for the Galatian audience, and for us, is that there is the temptation, having come to a knowledge of Christ, that we would revert to old ways of living without realizing that we've been rescued from that very way of living. We've been delivered from living by the flesh and delivered into new life in Christ. And so Paul asks the Corinthians, and he could very well ask the Galatians, are you being merely human? To be merely human is to be a son of Adam, to be someone who is full of fleshly living, someone who engages in the works of the flesh, which are all sinful, all anti-God, all rebellion against him, rather than living by the Spirit, which is to elevate you to a standard of living that Jesus Christ himself possessed, a life full of love for God and love for neighbor. That's the kind of life that God has intended to elevate us to when he's given us justification and given us the gift of the Spirit. So as we look at this works of the flesh, we are to consider, are any of these applicable to our way of living now? Are any of these the way that we are living and if so, it would be evidence then that you are not walking by the Spirit. Recall that this comes in the context of Paul suggesting to us that there are two ways to live. He says in Galatians 5 verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he goes on to list out the works of the flesh. Jesus told us in John chapter 3, verse 3, you must be born again. And then in 3.5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul says in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There are only two ways to live. You're either living by the flesh, which leads to eternal death, or you're living by the Spirit, which leads to eternal life. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8 puts it this way. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. By contrast, life in the Spirit is a life lived for the glory of God, by the power of God, in the ways that God desires you to live. We need to have some concrete understanding of what life in the flesh looks like. And so helpfully, Paul describes for us what the works of the flesh are. It puts some substance to it. And it helps you to systematically go through these categories of sinful living and compare your life against See, am I walking by the Spirit or am I walking by the flesh? Am I being led by the Spirit or am I indulging in fleshly ways of living? The reason that this comes up to the Galatians is because they are being taught by false teachers to strive for their own salvation by works of the law. And Paul describes that as living by the flesh. It's relying on mere human effort apart from God and his strength. And if you begin to live a life that way, you will see that your flesh is against God and it will manifest itself in overt acts of disobedience to God and his law, which you are claiming to keep. The list of the works of the law here are described as evident. They're obvious. It really doesn't take any uh, level of deep theological training to understand what they are. You've probably seen them in your own life. And if you've had trouble seeing in them in your own life, you've probably seen them clearly in other people's lives. We're often better at that. But I take when Paul says in verse 19 of Galatians 5 that the works of the flesh are evident, it means that they're going to be manifest. You can't keep them behind a closed door. They are going to show themselves in some capacity in your life. You may do a fine job of hiding them from other people. They may not be able to see what you do behind closed doors, but you know about it. They're manifest. It's evident. He goes on to give us a list of 15 items. These are not exhaustive. So if you don't find your exact vice on this list, don't consider yourself excused. He says in verse 21, and things like these. So as we go through this and you find yourself pricked in your conscience, but you don't necessarily find the word that describes the thing that you struggle with, don't run from that conviction. Understand that these are mere representations of the kinds of things that people who are not living according to God's ways do. It's not exhaustive. Where the flesh is at work, however, something like these things will be manifest. Again, there are 15 items listed. You can break them down into four categories of where works of the flesh manifest themselves. They manifest themselves in our sexuality, in our religion, in our relationships, and in our celebrations. We'll walk through these categories one at a time and address each word individually. First, the works of the flesh in our sexuality. It probably comes as no surprise that at the top of the list of where works of the flesh are manifest, it is in the realm of human sexuality. It is just like us to take a good gift that God has given and pervert it, distort it, abuse it, and thus show that we are a people who want God's gifts but don't want God in them. 
This is considered fleshly living, not merely because it is something that is engaged with the body that you possess, but it's more than that. It is fleshly living because it is against God. That's what fleshly living is. And so it takes on manifestations from a wide range of sinful indulgences, the porn industry, the sex trade, unmarried couple living together, homosexuality, all of those are expressions of human, of mere fleshly living. Again, not because they are only bodily acts, but because they are against God and not of his spirit. And so they are of the flesh. There are three items that are listed here. The first is sexual immorality. The word for that is porneia. It indicates various kinds of unsanctioned sexual activity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul indicates that this word, porneia, is wider than just one manifestation of sexual immorality. It has a whole range of applications. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. You see there that Paul understands that there's a spectrum of sexual immorality, and he's just indicating one particular kind that the Corinthians are indulging in, and that's a kind that the rest of the world doesn't even indulge in. Abstaining from sexual immorality is the very will of God for his people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but, ho- but in holiness. Our world, much like the world that Paul inhabited, was rank with sexual immorality. There was an incredible openness about sexual engagement. Just about anything goes in our day and in Paul's day as well. In fact, it's been noted that when Paul teaches a biblical sexual morality, it was so revolutionary to the ancient world that it almost would indicate a conversion in the life of the person who would pursue purity in the realm of sexuality because it was so distinct from the culture around them. It's the world we live in. Doesn't an engaged couple who's committed not to having sex until marriage look so foreign to our world? A young person who is committed to abstain until God would give the gift of a marriage partner just looks almost insane in our culture. And yet this is the will of God. And it is a work of the flesh to engage in sexual immorality. The standard of God's will for human sexuality is laid out in the opening chapters of the Bible. He creates a man. He creates a woman. He unites them together in the gift of marriage. And that is the only place that God authorizes sanctions, and blesses a sexual union. That's it. Everything outside of that is a perversion. And everything inside of that is good. The second word that Paul uses is impurity. Impurity. This is reminiscent of Old Testament laws that distinguished between the clean and the unclean. 
In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 2, it regards touching something that could be clean like a, or unclean, like a carcass of an unclean wild animal or the carcass of unclean livestock. It indicates engagement with something that was not to be touched or dealt with. With Paul putting impurity right next to sexual immorality, it's very clear that he's regarding it in the realm of sexual conduct and viewing it as engaging in anything outside of the standard for which God has set for sexual morality is an impurity. It's taking clean water and dumping it into it, refuse and filth of the worst kind. In Matthew 23, verse 27 Jesus comes at the Pharisees and calls them hypocrites and says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Or our word um, impurity, same concept. This vileness, this decay of that which was once alive or good. Impurity or uncleanness. The works of the flesh are sexual immoralities that are impure. The third word that Paul uses is sensuality. It's variously translated as lewdness, lustful pleasures, depravity, debauchery. The dictionary definition of the word is this. It's a lack of self-constraint which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Self-abandonment. The illustration of this is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And Paul, again, is using this in regard to the sexual realm in Galatians. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he's talking about some ungodly practices in the ancient world. He's talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah being turned to ashes. God condemned them to extinction making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. The conduct of Sodom and Gomorrah is described as sensual or lewd or debauched. That's the idea here. The works of the flesh expressed in sexual immorality and impurity also includes this sensuality. It's the total abandonment of all constraints, particularly in the regard to sexuality. Probably what comes to your mind is You just look around our world and you see a total abandonment of constraints. We see flags flying that advocate a complete abandonment of God's standard for sexual morality. But this text in Galatians is not talking about when the world flies a rainbow flag. It's talking about when the church flies the rainbow flag. And it's not just those churches that have succumbed to openness in regard to this area. It's also addressing the members of the church that engage in adulterous affairs or pornography or dating couples that go too far. These are the works of the flesh. And they have no place in the life of one who is walking by the Spirit. Those who are justified, those who are saved and given the gift of the Spirit, are not given the gift of the Spirit so you can go off and do whatever you want. You've been given a Holy Spirit who's to lead you in holiness. Not to live in abandonment against God and His ways. If any 
of these things characterize you. Any level of sexual immorality. You need to know that it is an expression of the works of the flesh. And you also need to know the kind of damage that it brings. Where there is promiscuity, pornography, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, impurity, wild living, damage is always done. People are always hurt. So I was studying this text. It didn't take long for me to just be flooded with names and events that depict the moral failings of people who are called Christians. Whether it be adultery or fornication or pornography, story after story of people who are engaging in this realm and bringing destruction to themselves and to relationships around them. Pastor after pastor came to mind who has fallen as a result of adultery and sexual immorality. I read through a blog post of one prominent pastor who had fallen into adultery. And he writes to his congregation a letter of acknowledgement of breaking his marriage vows. Not just once, but twice. In different adulterous relationships. What a horrible thing for a congregation to have to read. I would ask that you would pray that this congregation would never have to read a letter like that. And I would love to be a pastor who would never again have to counsel somebody through adultery and the ramifications of it or through pornography or through illicit sexual conduct. But if you are struggling with that, I would be more than happy to talk with you and help you. It is not a place that you can continue living. You need to come out of it. You need to leave that life behind. It will only ruin and destroy you and destroy others around you. There is forgiveness in Christ. These are not the unforgivable sins. There is forgiveness here. But only when there is repentance. That's the first kind of works of the flesh. The second kind that Paul gets into are the works of the flesh in our religion. Works of the flesh are not constrained to immoral sexual activities. It also applies to our religion. Paul uses two words, idolatry in verse 20 and sorcery. Idolatry is well known. You know that is when you erect a false god and worship that. The fleshly act is pictured all around our world even today as you watch ungodly practices of bowing down to altars, offering incense or food to statues. Fleshly living comes into our religion when we begin to worship something that is not God. Paul equates idolatry in Colossians 3.5 with greed, by the way. He says, that a man who is greedy is just like an idolater. Covetousness, that is idolatry. That is that a man who creates a, um, an image of gold or silver 
and bows down to it is not that much different from somebody who worships gold and silver in financial form. It's the same heart practice, and it can infiltrate our very religion. Sorcery is a word that's used for divination, witchcraft, really magic potions. It would be used in the ancient world where poisons would be used in this kind of um, magical arts that was engaged in idolatrous worship. That kind of fleshly living in our religion may not appear immediately practical to you. That suggests that many churches that would take the name Christian would be trying to dive into the spiritual world by ungodly means. They practice things that aren't to be practiced, whether it be babbling tongues or trying to manipulate the spirit in ways that are so ungodly that they look bizarre. That's all over the place, and that's living merely human. It's trying to access God by human ways. You cannot do that. The counterpunch to this is to walk by the Spirit, to realize that God has revealed to us the very gospel that we are to believe. It's the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners by means of the death of his son on the cross. That's the revelation of God. That's how we access God. And we come to him by trusting his promises and by no other means. Religion becomes fleshly when you try to incorporate fleshly means of accessing God rather than trusting his revealed will. That's works of the flesh in our religion. Paul goes on to identify eight more terms that indicate the works of the flesh in our relationships. Works of the flesh in our relationships. And this is probably the core of what Paul is getting at in this section. Because he's told us in verse 15 of Galatians 5, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He spends the most time on this, probably because the Galatians, as they're being infiltrated with these false teachers and accepting the false teaching and begin to live a fleshly life, divide into factions and begin to bite and devour each other. And the relationships are broken. This is probably one of the most obvious ways to identify works of the flesh in a corporate setting. When you see relationships disintegrate, strife and conflict arise. The first word that's used is enmity or hatred or hostility. It's in the plural indicating that there's a variety of expressions of this. It's the opposite of peace in a relationship. It's used in regard to our relationship with God in Romans 8, 7, saying that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's obvious when there's this kind of hostility towards one another. If you're in a social engagement and everything seems to be fine and then somebody walks into the room and immediately the temperature just drops 20 degrees because you know there's a conflict between these two people. There's an icy coldness, a glaring, closed-off postures, a lack of friendliness. It can stem from a variety of reasons, but in the end, you just hate that person. That's hostility. Is there anybody you hate? That's hostility. That's a work of the flesh. In Luke 23.12, it's used to describe the way that Herod and Pilate used to feel about each other until the day that they come together and have a common enemy in Jesus. But they used to be at hostility with one another, enmity. Their boundaries of oversight politically probably overlapped a bit, and so they were at conflict with each other, and they hated each other. That's a work of the flesh. That's the way humans act without God. The next word is strife, really the result of hatred. It has to do with a rivalry that results in discord and contention. Paul says in Philippians 1.15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. It's the same word, this 
strife. Or in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. These are those unprofitable, selfish arguments that are really self-promoting and non-deferential. You're not willing to give an inch and you just want to get the other person to come over to your side. You want to decimate the other person. This is illustrated all the time in our political system when two people on opposite sides of the spectrum cannot have a civil debate but go after each other with all the venom of a viper. Within the church, this is the husband and wife who cannot speak to each other without it turning into a quarrel. They cannot speak in peaceable word to each other. This is the elder and deacon who can never agree on anything and are only contentious all the time. Where there is ongoing strife, there are works of the flesh. The next one is jealousy. Every translation comes at it as jealousy. It's negative in this instance, negative feelings towards another's achievements or success. Like all these vices, it exposes self-centeredness. It's all about you. You're a king or queen of the world. And if you find that someone else has something better than you in gifting or status or materially, then you're jealous of them. James writes in James chapter 3, Verse 14 through 16, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Alexander Strauch relays for us a church, he says, quote, I am acquainted with that was being torn to pieces by petty jealousies among choir members. Two members were fighting over which of them should be choir director. One angrily threatened to leave the church if the other was appointed director. One man was resentful that another got to sing lead part more than he. Some parents were hurt because their adult children were turned down from joining the choir, while the children of others, not so well liked, were included. Some musicians resented others who were more favored. There was lots of petty bickering about unfairness and not being properly recognized. Self-interest and small-minded jealousy dominated the choir and caused division in the congregation. End quote. One of the principles at the last church I was at was that when the tide comes in, all the ships rise. And we use that axiom so that there wouldn't be any kind of jealousy among the staff members. If one area of ministry was going well, that was not to be looked at with jealousy by another staff member who wasn't having quite as much success. It was to remind us, we're all on the same team. We're all for Christ. And so if you are jealous over somebody else's success in ministry or within the church, what a horrible thing because you forget that Christ is that of the church, not you. Jealousy is a horrible work of the flesh. Fits of anger is the next, or outbursts of anger, or fits of rage, or outbursts of wrath. That term about wrath is used frequently in Revelation in regard to God's judicious wrath. Here it's used of human wrath, sudden outrage, fits of anger. It's that burst that comes out of you in a tirade or a torrent of words that just cuts the people down that are in your way. You pull out the chainsaw of your tongue and you're just ready to lop off every branch and tree that's in your way. It's a fit of rage. The child on the playground, when he doesn't get his way, throws himself down 
goes into a tantrum of rage and anger and beats the earth. Adults don't do, often do the same thing, but they do spew out horrible words at people that they hate. It's the parent who lashes out in verbal rage at their child. It's the pastor who lets his congregation just have it from time to time. It's a church member who has to just express his or her passionate position with all judgmentalism and vileness of words. It's the church meeting that erupts into shouting and attacks. Fits of rage. The next one, rivalries, disputes, better translated as selfish ambition or selfish ambitions or selfish rivalries. This word was used by Aristotle to describe the self-seeking politicians who are trying to gain office. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The manifestation of this self-seeking comes in the form of rivalries. It will manifest itself in manipulation and power plays. As you seek your way, you just kind of try to get everything molded to how you want it to be at the expense of all others. Mark Driscoll, the pastor of Mars Hill Church in Seattle that went defunct and he was fired or let go or left, I don't know what it was. He was a leader who was known for his own self-promotion. He was let go because of the selfish ambition of his leadership style that would roll over anybody in his way. When someone disagreed with him, it was said by somebody who experienced this, that it was the worst conversation I've ever had with any human being on earth. He was vile, he was vulgar, he threatened me with obscene language, said that he would destroy me, destroy my career, and make sure I never ministered again. That's what selfish ambition will drive you to. This contentious, domineering kind of person tries to manipulate others to get their way. Next is dissensions. This is in the state of being in factious opposition. Do you see the theme here? Fleshly people can't get along with each other. They form groups and cliques that elevate one against another, and it turns into gossip, into slander, into backbiting. One pastor I knew had the um, experience of some beginnings of dissension in the church, and people began to congregate in the, in the hallway after the service and would be talking to each other about the problems that they had with the church. And the pastor decided that he was going to go up to these groups that were kind of whispering among themselves on the Sunday following the service, and would go up to the groups and say, good morning. Are we glorifying God today? <laughs> Are we speaking words of edification and building up? Are we seeking the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace today? Oh, I hope you have a great Sunday. God bless you. <laughs> Romans sixteen seventeen. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. The next one is divisions or factions. This term was used elsewhere in Greek to refer to political preferences or group loyalties. It refers to groups in the New Testament, Pharisees, Sadducees. It distinguishes one group from another. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, Paul says, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Here, it's only referring to fleshly driven, selfishly motivated groups of people organizing themselves around some idea or ideal other than a spirit-led gospel unity and infused approach to life. 
This is when the church sees one group wanting to hire a music pastor and another wanting to hire a youth pastor. This is when one group wants a new kitchen and the other group wants a bigger auditorium. This is when one group likes the new pastor and one group likes the old pastor. Where there are factions, there is the flesh. And then envy, which is nearly indistinguishable from jealousy. One author writes that envy is a selfish desire to possess what others have or advantages they enjoy. It is the cause of a great deal of fighting and resentment as it drives people to speak evil of others, to find fault, to maliciously tear down others, and to gloat over the failures and tragedies of others. Question. How do you feel when someone else in the church gets what you want? Maybe it's a good marriage. A husband or a wife. Maybe it's a child. Maybe they receive recognition for their service or position. How do you feel? Do you want what they have and resent that they have it? That's envy. Relationships in the world are marked by these characteristics. But this is looking at the church. It ought not to be this way because we are to be people saved by grace and led by the Spirit. Soon we'll see what the fruit of the Spirit is and it looks totally different than these things. What a tragedy when a Spirit-born church is marked by fleshly contentions, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and so on. The last category, and quickly, is works of the flesh in our celebrations. Paul uses two words, drunkenness and orgies. Orgies is too overtly sexual for what the word means. It's better to be carousing or revelries or wild parties. It might have sexual connotations, but generally it's just party animals. That's what it's talking about. Drunkenness and carousing or revelries. Again, this is taking the good things that God has created. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. And we take that and abuse it, distort it, and whip it up with works of the flesh into drunkenness and carousing and revelries. Where this is, or these are, is the works of the flesh. Many will note that these types of parties or wild parties is much like Mardi Gras of our day. If anyone's going, by the way, to Mardi Gras, uh, let's have a little discussion. Okay? <laughs> it involves indulging the flesh just this outlandish, wild living. And amazingly enough, there are people who will live that way during the week and then come to church on Sundays. Now, we want you to come to church on Sundays. But let the life of the Spirit infiltrate the rest of your week. Paul closes here with a warning. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One paraphrase puts it this way, anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word do there is a present participle. It means an ongoing or continuous action. It does not mean someone who stumbles occasionally into these things and repents and seeks forgiveness. It is somebody rather whose life is given over to this lifestyle. You're hooked up to the train of the works of the flesh and you've got to get on another track entirely. If this is your direction, if, if one of these or several of these just marks your life, that's who you are. 
heed this warning, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? Because unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter it. True salvation is to have your life made new from the inside out so that you are no longer of the flesh, but you are led by the Spirit. I would think that there may be three different responses to these things. Some of you look at this list and think, hallelujah, these are things God delivered me from. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I sin daily. But these words are not what describe my way of living. Praise God if that's the case. Hallelujah indeed. That's a work of God. Some of you might look at this list and think, some of these are more present in my life than I would like. I may be on the verge of one who practices them. It might be anger, it might be sexual immorality. If you know Christ, then you need to know these are the types of things he has come to set you free from. Repent, seek the Lord, ask for his help. Some of you look at this list and think, this is my life. I don't have a clue what life in the Spirit looks like. Dominated by anger, strife, sexual immorality. My life is a mess. If that's the case for you, it's not hopeless. There is hope in Jesus Christ who offers forgiveness of sins and offers His own Spirit to come into your life and make you new. Come to Him this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved You're saved from the condemnation that your sin deserves. And you're given a new life in Christ. Come to Christ if you haven't already. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that speaks to us so clearly. Help us, Father, not to live by the flesh, but to live by the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.